Israel is a tiny country. Its land area, smaller than that of Sicily. Its population, less than that of Tehran, capital of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Yet it's a subject of constant comment and controversy, frequently attacked, kinetically and rhetorically, by its enemies, its adversaries, even by those who should be its allies. We're going to discuss a few of Israel's recent battles with Eugene Kontorovich, who teaches at George Mason University's Scalia School of Law and is a director of the Kohelet Policy Forum, an Israeli think tank. His areas of expertise include constitutional law, federal courts, international law, and the Arab-Israeli conflict. I'm Cliff May, and you're listening to Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. Eugene, I happened to see you on on Al Jazeera the other day, and um, you were being interviewed about the Israeli nation-state law, which has been a subject of controversy, a subject you've weighed in on quite a bit. Um, to say you were being interviewed actually is charitable of me. You were being essentially attacked by the moderator. Call him a moderator is charitable as well. Though I have to say, I don't think he landed a glove or drew any blood. Uh, but is this, is this, was this because it was Al Jazeera or has this been sort of typical of interviews you've done on this particular issue? Al Jazeera was particularly hostile in tone, but I think not so different in content. Uh, a lot of the journalists who I talk to about this law, and I talk to a lot, uh, seem to have swallowed uh, hook, line, and sinker a certain set of uh, very carefully packaged talking points about the law. Uh, and the questions they ask are themselves very problematic and often misinformed and might include 10 misstatements in uh, in one sentence, which makes it very hard to even correct the record. Uh, one very typical question that journalists ask is, well, why did Israel need this law? Now, that might be a useful question for Israeli newspapers to talk about, but I don't know of any context in which the international uh, community, in which the international press takes an interest in whether a law of a particular country was needful mm. or not. Now, I'm a libertarian. I think most laws aren't needful, but it is, uh, it's a way of shifting the goalposts to change the question from, is this law consistent with democratic norms? Is it like laws in other Western liberal democracies to, was it really needed? Because that's a hard test to, for any, for any law to, uh, to meet. Let's discuss have you define what this law actually does as opposed to what a lot of people may think it does. What does this law actually establish that wasn't established previously? So that's very, very important because I think much of the discussion of the law says that it does things that it simply doesn't. And at first, I just want to recommend the listener to go look at the law itself. It's online and it's 11 paragraphs long, which means you save yourself almost no time listening or reading someone else's description of the law. 
And when, notably, when people discuss the law and say it does very horrible things, like make Arabs second-class citizens or other terrible things, it's without reference to anything that the law actually does or any provisions of the law. And when one looks at the law, it does not do those things. The most important thing it does is declarative and symbolic. It says that Israel is the nation state of the Jewish people. That is, of course, the idea upon which the country was founded. And it is a what I would call secular, liberal, Zionist centerpiece. That is the basic uh, theory of Zionist thought that Israel is the country in which Jews shall make their political home. Now, that does not mean that anyone else in the country is deprived of their individual rights. But in terms of being a communal home, Israel is the one home of the Jewish people. Now, for American listeners, this may seem odd because America is not a country that is founded as an expression of the self-determination of any people. America is a country that is uh, founded on certain ideas. But in this respect, America is atypical. In many Western European countries and Eastern European countries, the Constitution specifically says that the nation reflects, is is the corporate uh, embodiment uh, of the political aspirations of a people. So seven European constitutions say that they are their countries, such as Slovenia, some Baltic countries, embody the national self-determination of a particular people. Many more European countries uh, have state institutions that embody official religions of particular peoples. So this is not unusual. That's the idea of a nation state, right? Right. The Estonian people express their their self-determination now. They didn't so much during the Soviet period as in an Estonian nation state. The Lithuanian people have a nation state. That doesn't mean there aren't minorities living in those countries and we would expect or hope for the, that those minorities would have freedom, would have equal rights, would be treated with great respect. And in fact, I would say – I would argue, I think you will too, that in Israel, uh, it is the – we've talked about it for years as the Jewish state. What do we mean by that? And it, it meant that there was self-determination for one of the ancient peoples of the Middle East. The Kurds don't have self-determination yet. There are other peoples who don't, but the Jews do. The Jewish people does, but the minorities, I would argue, are have more rights in Israel. About 20% of the country is minorities, mostly Arabs, mostly Muslims, also Christians. We'll talk about that and others in a second. They have more rights than minorities do in any other country in the Middle East without, without even question. Exactly. And I think the crucial point to remember is the saying that a country represents the entity for self-determination is only talking about uh, collective and national rights. On the level of individual rights, nothing in this basic law or any other Israeli law gives any one Israeli citizen more rights than the other. But there are certain things, so in, because in each individual has the full set of rights, whether they're Arab, whether they're Druze, whether they're Jewish. Certain things don't, however, function on the individual level, like a flag. You're not going to have every individual does not have their own flag. So this is where the notion of the, the Jewish national state takes uh, embodies itself. The flag is the flag of the Jewish people, the Star of David, because you can only have one flag. Uh, There was an Onion headline, Mideast Peace Achieved Through 350 Million State Solution. But short of that, uh, there are certain things that are indivisible, like self-determination. So for example, uh, Hatikva is the national anthem. You're only going to have one national anthem, otherwise baseball games are going to take a very long time. And again, consistent with almost uh, the universal practice of countries, Hebrew is the one official 
language, the primary official language. Because, as we see from our northern neighbors in America, to have more than one fully official language is burdensome. Now, people have said that this law demotes the status of Hebrew, that's one, of Arabic, Arabic. Arabic. That's one of the most commonly misstated facts about this, that it demotes Arabic. And again, this is completely false. The reason it's false is there had been no previous Israeli law governing the status of Arabic. Arabic had been governed by a regulation promulgated by the British colonial administration, which the reason it was still in force is because Israel does not have a constitution. And so until they get around to passing these basic laws every couple decades, everything else is left on the books. So to say that the law demotes the status of Arabic, first of all, ignores an express provision in the law which says the status of Arabic is preserved. That is to say, Everything that is done now in Arabic will continue to be done in Arabic. Everything you can do in Arabic. But as the primary official language, to say that Israel cannot make Hebrew their primary official language is to essentially say Israel is not a fully sovereign country. That this one country still needs to be governed by colonial era legislation that they cannot change. Just from the very practical level, if you drive around Israel, you see signs. And it's easy for me who doesn't speak Hebrew. The signs are in Hebrew, but they're also in Arabic, but they're also in English. Is that going to change? Uh, that well, the English part can't is not guaranteed. The English part, by the way, also derives from this British colonial law. That's one reason they're uh, in English. So that is not has not been constitutionally protected. But exactly when they say the status quo, that means the things now done, like signs in Arabic, will not be changed. One, but one reason that the uh, the law was passed is to protect the status quo. And how do we see this? First of all, the Arabic status quo is explicitly protected. That's what it says: protect the status quo. And as so why say that Hebrew shall be the official language? Because one concern was that absent a constitutional provision like this, the Supreme Court might say, ah, the law, the British law, says there's three official languages. So we know that in Canada, when they have two official languages, everything has to be done in both languages, every single thing. So now we're going to say that everything has to be done in both languages, every legal form, every regulation has to be published. That would be a rap drastic change in the status quo, but something the Supreme Court may well have done because it has uh, it's taken on itself wide interpretive powers. So when people say, why was this law necessary? One reason it was necessary was exactly to preserve the 70-year-old status quo from being undone by an increasingly radical Supreme Court. When we talk about Israel as a Jewish state, as this nation-state law does, there's a, a confusion that strikes me as both conceptual and semantic, and it's that um, that people that Jude the, the Jewish religion is the predominant religion of the Jewish people, but it's not synonymous. In other words, you have in Israel and elsewhere plenty of people who would identify themselves as members of the Jewish nation, Jewish people, who may be atheists, who may be secular, who may not practice Judaism. Nonetheless, not practicing Judaism does not allow a Jew to go to Japan and say, I am fully Japanese. It doesn't quite work that way. You still have ancestry. And I think this is sometimes not understood and sometimes I think it's purposefully misrepresented, not least by Israel's enemies, to say just because you're Jewish, if you wanted to be a Jewish state that makes it somehow a theocracy, you're basing it on religion rather than on a nation that has existed for a very long time, thousands of years but didn't have its self-determination self and a nation state over that period. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. It's a very important point. Uh, and Jewishness has two primary meanings. Uh, being Jewish is being part of a religion, 
and it is also being part of what I call a nation or a people. Uh, now, and obviously those two have a lot to do with each other. Uh, Judaism is a people with its religion, but you can be part of the people and not partake of the religion. The law uses the term Jewish self-determination, Jewish nation, exclusively in the secular sense. So when it says Jewish state, it means a state for the Jewish people, not a state of the Jewish religion. And one of the most uh, shocking things, people don't really aren't aware of this, this law has not a single religious aspect in it, and indeed, Israel, being the only majority Jewish state in the world, does not have Judaism as its official religion. As a matter of fact, Israel does not have an official religion, contrary to what many people think. So while there are very nice countries that have Lutheranism as their official religion, numerous countries, countries that have various kinds of uh, other Protestantism, Anglicanism as their official religion, many countries that have Catholicism as their official religion, and many, many countries that have Islam as their official religion, there is no country, not even the primary Jewish country in the world, that has Judaism as their official religion. And the basic law, nation-state, does not change that. Rather, this law is rooted entirely in the secular, liberal, Zionist values, which makes the attack on it from what one thought were secular, liberal, Zionist quarters particularly surprising. In the territories governed by the Palestinians, not uh, fully, uh, not a full, fully a nation state, but they, but under, under Palestinian laws, which they have, is there an official religion? Yes, indeed. Uh, every Muslim country, pretty much, has Islam as their official religion. In the Palestinian Authority, and certainly, if it were to become a state, this would be the law of the state. In the Palestinian Authority, Islam is the official language, uh, religion. Arabic is the official language. The state is officially Palestinian and Arab, and Jerusalem is officially the capital. So the Israeli basic law does not go as far as the Palestinian constitution. And the strange thing is many of the critics of the Israeli law, which say that you know having an official language, having a statement of self-determination makes Israel an apartheid state, they're supporters of creating a Palestinian state. So if this makes a state apartheid, why do they want to create another apartheid state? And again, the Palestinian constitution is not the only one like this. This is commonplace even in supposedly secular Arab countries. The first words of the constitution of the state of Egypt, the Arab Republic of Egypt, are in the name of Allah, the great, the merciful. And then the rest of the constitution follows. The whole constitution is in the name of Allah. And of course, Islam is the official religion and so forth. But this is not thought to be, uh, this is not generally something people criticize these countries on. No, nor is there, I, just to expand that, uh, there are 22 members of the Arab League. These are all nations that self-identify as expressions of Arab self-determination. There are 56 members of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. They identify as Islamic. You don't hear criticism of that. Somehow only the one state in the entire world that says we are a Jewish state and has said that for a long time makes that official, and suddenly that is a subject of controversy around the world. Exactly. Now, what some people say, by the way, on this, they say, oh, well, you know, that's because Israel has 20% Arab population, so what about them? And when people make this point, I think it betrays a vast ignorance of uh, basically the entire world because all of these countries we're talking about, the Baltics, Slovenia, Slovakia, Egypt, they all have 
national minorities. The reason we don't, so the Baltics have many of the countries have 25% Russian population. We don't know about those minorities so much because they don't quite get the press coverage. But minorities is not something Israel has a monopoly on. Indeed, they are ubiquitous because national borders never overlap with demographic borders. Indeed, I would say the one country I could think of or a potential country that is uh, uh, not blessed with a minority is, of course, the Palestinian Authority because the Jordanians expelled all the Jews from their territory and the Palestinian Authority would not let Jews live there peaceably. So if there was a state of Palestine, they might actually not be burdened with a minority. But that's a very unusual circumstance. And certainly there's Christians there who do not participate in the official religion of Islam. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the minorities in Israel uh, are the Druze. Uh, A very interesting community, it seems to me. Uh, they don't. They they live in quite a few Middle Eastern countries. They don't seek a national self determination in any of them. They're an ethno religious minority, is what I would call them. Um, you can't become a Druze. You can leave the, the Druze and, and 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 join another population, but uh, you you can't you can't come in. Um, they are very loyal Israeli citizens. They insist on being drafted and serving in the military like any other Israeli. They've been disturbed by this law, and I'm trying to understand why they've been disturbed. And I think a lot of Israelis are worried that the Jews um, find this in some way offensive. What do you think is going on there? Uh, I think there may be a couple of things going on. Again, coverage of this law has been entirely detached from what is in it. Just the other day, Ronald Lauder made very serious accusations about this law. It threatens Israeli who, democracy. Ronald Lauder is a successful uh, businessman and philanthropist and the head of the World Jewish Congress. Congress yeah. Yeah. Uh, and made very serious statements uh, about the law. And for me as a law professor, the entire discussion of this law is very strange because when we usually as law professors talk about a constitution, we will then quote constitutional language. But nothing appears in quotes about this law. Rather, they say this law makes people second class, but doesn't say how. So, and this is the case for you know this is the this is the nation state of the Jewish people law, and if the discussion of it amongst the Jews, their very own nation state law, is so detached from the contents of it, one might forgive the Jews from just relying on headlines in the Jewish papers written about in the Jewish state about the Jewish nation state law. And when they see the Jews saying it makes the Druze second class, the Druze might well uh, accept that it is true or anticipate that it is true. And while uh, you know, I'm sure I'm sure the Druze follow the news as closely as anyone else. But in my experience, most people who talk about this law have not read it, and I would expect the Druze may not be any different in this respect. So that's one point. Another point is that it might show how Israeli they have gotten. The Druze serve loyally in the army, and they get benefits for army service like anyone else. But then they might look around, and they see Arabs don't do get as many benefits, but they don't serve in the army at all. And the Haredim get tons of benefits, the and they don't serve in the orthodox. The ultra orthodox. So they're in between the Arabs who don't serve, and maybe they don't get as much government funding, or they don't get you know the veterans' benefits, obviously. So they do well with their veterans' benefits. The Druze. But, uh, you know, the uh, ultra-Orthodox, they don't serve, and they get all sorts of yeshiva benefits also, maybe not as, as that are necessarily as valuable, but without the service. So they, they, they think we're becoming what in Israel is called friarim, suckers, 
And it's the most Israeli thing to not want to be a sucker. So I would think that part of this is what I would call the heretization of the, of the Druze. The uh, ultra-Orthodox in Israel are very talented at pitching a huge fit over government policies that only mildly, let's say, impinge their interests. Like a new plan to draft a very slightly larger number of yeshiva students, uh, the Haredim will take to the streets, they will have huge demonstrations, lie down in traffic saying, it is the end of the yeshiva system. Now, I like the yeshiva system as much as anyone. I wanted to continue, so I'd be very upset if it was the end of the yeshiva system, but none of these laws are the end. And why do they think they are? The answer is they don't. But they have learned that to have political power, you need to be able to dial outrage up to 11, to paraphrase Spinal Tap, to you know, really turn up, crank up the outrage over the smallest thing. And that way you show you have control, you can mobilize your population, and that way you get benefits. Can, and will, can or will the grievances of the Druze as loyal Israeli minority be resolved? Is that what, well, what the substantive grievances are yeah. unresolvable because they say, again, there's nothing in this law that takes away any of their rights. So they say the law makes them feel second class. You can't argue with feelings. Uh, and uh, you know, so why do they feel that way? They could feel exactly the opposite way and it would be just as valid. And by the way, not all Jews agree. There are some Jews who think, uh, who, who don't take this perspective or they think that the game the Jews are playing is dangerous because on one hand, you know, they can get benefits. On the other hand, they might weaken Israel, which is, um, not good for the Jews when we see what's happening to Jews populations in Syria and Lebanon. But, uh, you know, what the Jews now are saying is we're really upset. Uh, we're deeply hurt. You can't make it better by just giving us money, which is usually in Israeli politics the opening salvo for how much money uh, are we talking about? This like because the Haredim also say the same thing. You have crossed a red line. We will not sit in government with you who dare touch our yeshiva exemptions. Usually that is the beginning of a discussion about money. I want to move on, but before mm -hmm. I do this, I want to make one more point or, and, and ask you to make one more point on this, and that is to go back to the original unfair question of was this law necessary? And an argument that it is necessary might be this, that there, there, there is so much of an effort to say that Israel should not be accepted as the nation state of the Jewish people. To put, there is so much push against that from various quarters. Um, a former Jordanian culture minister, you probably saw this, Saleh Gerar, posed the other day that Jews should return to their countries of origin. That's the, now this is, again, this is from uh, the, uh, a Jordanian, Jordan is at peace with Israel, and this is a former Jordanian culture minister. And of course, what he seems to not recognize or not acknowledge is more than half of all Israelis are descended from Jewish refugees who come from, who are forced to flee from such Muslim countries um, and such places as Aleppo, uh, Baghdad, Tripoli, Tehran. I cannot imagine there would be great celebrations in Aleppo where the Jews uh, from the – who descended from Aleppo Jews uh, who are now Israelis, were they to go back. But people don't realize that, they, 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 I suppose, when he says that. But for that reason, because this is out there, it seems to me there's a reason for, the, for Israelis to say – Let's make this very clear, no ambiguity. We're talking about a Jewish state. We're declaring it a Jewish state. We'll take care of our minorities. We respect them, but this is the state of the Jew, the homeland of the Jewish people. That was the idea going back a very long time. Yeah, exactly. I think the law is in fact necessary. First of all, it's necessary for some internal purposes. 
which are probably lost on most critics of the law, but Israel is faced with an increasingly activist Supreme Court and basic values of secular Zionism like the law of return were very potentially in the crosshairs of the Supreme Court as being unconstitutional. And what in the Constitution allows you to allow, have a favorable uh, uh, preferential immigration policy for Jews? Now, other countries do have laws of return, but they don't have the Israeli Supreme Court overseeing it. So part of the idea of this law was to constitutionally anchor the law of return in a broader framework. And part of it is indeed, yes, people say, why do you have to say it's the nation state of the Jewish people? Everybody already knows. But as we see from the reaction when Israel does say it, i.e. by passing this law, uh, it's not clear that people know or it's the kind of thing that people think is okay to know but you're not allowed to say it loudly. So yeah, we can we can quietly have Israel be the nation state of the Jewish people but you can't really say it then we're going to get mad. Um, in terms of the Jordanian former culture minister's point, uh, I think, it, you know, the problem, you know, the, it, the, the, it's more than just that half the Jewish inhabitants of Israel have uh, fled Middle Eastern countries. He said that Jews should come return to their countries of origin and this betrays uh, unawareness that that's exactly what Israel is. The Jews have returned to their country of origin and I can tell you, when we were in Europe, when we were in Ukraine and Poland, that's what they also told us. Return to your country of origin. So we did. Not because they told us to, but we, uh, we did. And only when we got to Israel and established a Jewish state did anyone start making the mistake that Europe was our country of origin. And we want, we want to say this is indeed our country of origin and it's important to claim ourselves as indigenous people. Indeed. Uh, it's a great, great and important point. Uh, I saw you recently testify uh, before Congress um, regarding the Golan Heights. And uh, just so people understand, the Golan Heights is an area um, that – from which Israel was attacked in the 1967 war, the so-called Six-Day War. They were attacked at that point by pretty much all of their Arab neighbors at once. And the goal of that war was unambiguously to wipe Israel off the map, to drive the Jews into the sea. There are plenty of quotes from uh, Nasser, who read Lit Egypt, and others to that effect. Oh, one thing Israel did is to push back this, the, 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 the Syrians and to seize land, uh, a high plateau uh, from the Syrians, which it has inhabited since then. Um, what you testified on was the utility of the U.S. recognizing that Israel's annexation and over that land of that land and sovereignty over that land, not all the land that Israel has taken in foreign wars, wars against its neighbors, wars of defensive wars, has Israel uh, annexed. But the Golan it has, for various reasons. Talk about that. Talk about what 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 is, what is your argument for that for recognition of that? So the Golan Heights has been in Israel's hand for hands for over fifty years. It has been administered by Israel for longer than it was ever part of Syria. Now people have objections about Israeli rule in Judea and Samaria, the West Bank because they say it conflicts with Palestinian self-determination or they think it's important to create a Palestinian state for reasons either of benefit to the Palestinians or to prevent problems for Israel. No one makes that argument. That argument doesn't apply to the Golan Heights. Uh, there is not a separate ethnic group there claiming self-determination. It's about half, half split between a small number of Jews 
and a small number of Druze who are not seeking their own state, as you mentioned. No uh, Palestinians. So the, uh, there's, no, there's no Palestinians by anybody's definition, uh, and there's almost no people. Uh, and there's no notion of creating some kind of state there or that it should be uh, made into a new country. The only alternative for this territory is turning it over to the Assad regime in Syria. Uh, it seems today, though I think it should have seemed always, quite clear that uh, territory under the control of the Assad regime is not good for the people who live there and uh, not necessarily good for the world. Uh, the only reason one might even support such a thing is if there was some ISIS presence there that one wanted to combat. There is no ISIS presence. There's only an Israeli presence. Uh, and indeed, on the other side of the Gorn Heights border uh, in Syria, there is a uh, multi-way ISIS-Syrian army fight, which uh, is not something whose uh, the space in which it, uh, that fight takes place, it's not clear why would one, one would want to increase. Now, Assad is a person who has, according to President Obama, lost all his legitimacy, and that was said five years ago. He has gassed his own people. He has created one of the greatest humanitarian disasters in modern times. Uh, it is absolutely not, uh, it seems crazy to give him anything. Now, the argument, and why would one do such a thing? The argument used to be that if the Golan Heights was given to Israel, Syria would make peace with Israel. That argument seems absolutely insane now because Assad has shown his absolute contempt for every treaty, armistice agreement, rule of international law. So someone who routinely gasses his people, which, by the way, in addition to being bad, is also against international treaties, uh, is unlikely to care about uh, a peace agreement with Israel uh, and the command of those heights would leave him in a much better strategic position to carry out attacks on Israel. So as a policy argument, returning this to Syria seems very stupid. And what we learned in this congressional hearing is everybody agrees on that. So the, the Republicans agreed, the Democrats agreed. There was not any dispute that it's a dumb idea to give it to Assad. So then the argument comes down to what does, how does one relate to it as a, under Israeli control? And some say, this will seem to be the position of some of the Democrats, it's good that it's under Israeli control, God forbid anyone change that, but why do we need to re recognize Israeli sovereignty for that purpose? And the answer to that is, unless one, if one thinks it is good that it be under Israeli control, uh, you know, one should put a ring on it, so to speak, and uh, make it official, uh, that if it's such a good thing, uh, keeping it in the shadows and keeping the status of Israeli control murky has the tendency of undermining that and encouraging attacks by Iran and Syria. Because why would America not? If America favors Israeli control of the Golan Heights, why not recognize Israel's claimed sovereignty over the Golan Heights? And the answer must be, to continue this analogy, America might be just not that into Israeli control and open to different arrangements. That, of course, invites Iranian attacks and Iranian attempts to encourage Syria and Syrian attempts to regain the Golan Heights. And we know that Iran has already started talking about this as the next frontier now that the uh, surprisingly successful campaign to um, strengthen Assad has uh, worked out well. Again, people might say, well, there's no real risk of Syria attacking the Golan Heights. They know they'll lose. They could never win. Uh, I have to remind people that six years ago, Every single foreign policy expert said Assad is done, it's over, he can't win, he's lost his legitimacy, very bad. Um, and others, you know, 
thought, but he's kept his chemical weapons, and in the end, that might help more. And indeed, he has prevailed against all odds, and uh, I think is up for more challenges. The certainly the goal of uh, so if the international community, if even Israel's greatest ally, America, will not uh, recognize Israeli control over a strategic area where most of the people are Jews and the other people have no desire for uh, self-determination, self-determination, it puts a question mark over it. And that question mark creates instability and invites uh, Syrian and Iranian adventurism. And by the way, I think we should say, and this is something you know well, under international law, under historical precedent, uh, a war of aggression, as the 1967 war was, as the attacks from Syria against Israel were, um, leading to the loss of some territory. That's what often happens, and it's and it's actually probably beneficial that it does happen, because it is a deterrent to those who would attempt to do it again. They should know that you won't just go back to the status quo and get back the land from which you attacked somebody. You may lose that land if you do that again, and you want. You probably want Syria and other aggressor nations to know if you attack Israel or if you attack anybody uh, to take their land away, they may end up taking your land away. Indeed. Uh, the idea that even an aggressor cannot lose any territory in an aggressive war to the defender is essentially an insurance policy for aggressors. Uh, it means they at least break even. And we know that after World War II, even after the UN Charter was created, most of the allied countries redrew the borders of the defeated Axis powers and their satellites in their favor. So Holland, Spain, uh, Holland, France, Russia, uh, Greece, all modified the borders of their neighbors in their favor, and uh, those changes have been recognized. One more question on this. I guess people often say Jews are news, but Druze are news today as well. The Druze population living in the Golan Heights has not taken Israeli citizenship. And as I understand it, the reason the Druze there have not taken Israeli citizenship is they're afraid that someday this land, this territory they're living in might go back to Syria. And if they have Israeli citizenship, they will be persecuted. They will probably be exterminated. They would risk that. Were the Golan, to be recognized as sovereign Israeli territory, the Jerusalem there might be able to say, okay, we're here, we live here, we're going to be Israeli citizens, this is our future, that would be better for them, better for an Israeli minority, and I think that's a reason to favor sovereignty for Israel in the Golan. Annexing the Golan would be great for the Druze. It would really support their full integration into Israeli life. They are eligible for Israeli citizenship. Most of them have chosen not to take it, but we do, we, do, uh, we do know because they're, they're good game theorists. They actually conduct on the birthday of Hafez al-Assad, they conduct little birthday parties for, uh, for Papa Assad in, uh, in, their, in, their, in their villages. And the reason is this. It's not that they're against Israel. It's that they've done the math. If Israel keeps control of the Golan Heights, what's, what's going to happen to them for having birthday parties for Assad? Nothing. No one really cares in Israel. If, on the other hand, Israel returns the Golan to Syria, they will, as we have seen, really all be killed along with their families. Uh, so they're playing it smart. But we saw in the past six years, during the Syrian civil war, when it seemed that Assad was losing the rate of Syrians, uh, of Druze, applying for Israeli citizenship went up sharply in the villages uh, on the Golan Heights. In particular, the young people 
began applying for Israeli citizenship much more. The numbers are still quite small, but there was a real increase in the rate uh, when it seemed like Assad wasn't going to last. And then when it looked like he's going to win the war, that has come to a halt. So it's quite clear that if there was a, if Israel was quite clear that it was going to keep this territory, uh, certainly the younger generation of Druze would most likely avail themselves of Israeli citizenship and may well serve in the army like the other Druze up north. Hmm. Uh, switching subjects, a little, the United Nations, I think we can say, um, has an anti-Israeli bias. Certainly many of its agencies egregiously do. Um, the UN Relief and Works Agency, which handles and has for years what it calls um, Palestinian refugees, is probably the worst. The Human Rights Council is pretty bad, but the U.S. has now left that. Um, talk a little about your views on the UN, on the various UN agencies, and what can be and what can and should be done uh, to correct this bias, which, by the way, Ambassador Nikki Haley has spoken about. I would say eloquently and 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 often uh, since she's become the U.S. ambassador to the UN. Yeah, so the UN has an obsession about Israel that really goes beyond all possible bounds. Uh, I had an article uh, with Peggy Grunsfeld in the Wall Street Journal two years ago where we actually quantified this. That is to say, everyone knows that the UN passes more resolutions about Israel than anything else, every UN agency. What we actually did is we looked at the language of the resolutions. And so not only do they pass vastly more resolutions about Israel, they say vastly different things. So if I remember correctly, Israel is referred to as an occupying power more than 500 times more than all the other countries of the world combined uh, and and so forth. Uh, so. It has a problem, but the reason that problem is so persistent, everyone knows about this problem. No one thinks it doesn't exist. The reason it's hard to fix is the UN is an international bureaucracy which is purposefully created and structured in a way to make it maximally unaccountable to the countries who are its members. Uh, so short of completely quitting the UN, which is politically unrealistic, it's very hard to discipline them. They hijack the agenda of these organizations and use uh, them as uh, vehicles for anti-Israel activities, such as in the case of UNESCO, passing very strange resolutions denying the Jewish connection to Jerusalem and Hebron. Now, that's bad for these UN agencies. It's bad for people who pay for them, namely the United States. Um, it's bad for Israel. There's a law on the books about this. Two laws, actually. There are two laws on the books about this. These laws passed in the 90s say that if UN agencies, and there's two laws because there's two different kinds of UN agencies, uh, and the laws deal with both of them, if these UN agencies accept the Palestinians as a state before the Palestinians have statehood, as determined by the State Department, uh, then the US is prohibited from funding the relevant UN agencies. And indeed, when the Palestinians joined UNESCO, the Obama administration was forced to cut funding to UNESCO. They were very unhappy about it. They begged and demanded the Israel lobby Congress to change the law and remove that protection. Uh, but in the end, they had to defund UNESCO. Since then, the Palestinians have joined four other UN agencies, starting with the UNFCCC. I don't want to say that phonetically uh, on a podcast. Um, but... Uh, it just shows how they don't really have to care about anything at the UN. To this oddly named organization is the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. 
And the Palestinians joined it in the uh, late Obama administration, I think very strategically, because this was exactly when President Obama was about to sign or purport to commit the U.S. to the Paris Climate Accords, and they knew that he would not quit this organization whose job it is to oversee the Paris Climate Accords. And indeed, uh, they didn't. And the State Department under Obama came up with a very strange explanation that it's not really an international organization. It's not a UN agency, even though it's called the UNFCCCC. It's uh, a treaty. Now, it is also a treaty. It's created by a treaty, but so is the UN. Um, there's actually the UNFCCC is amazing. It's 500 people sitting in an office building in Bonn. Only in the bureaucratic world of the UN does that not make you an agency. But since then, they've joined – so the non-enforcement of this law has encouraged the Palestinians to join three other UN agencies in recent months uh, to prote- in uh, response to the US uh, opening of the embassy in Jerusalem. Uh, so this is a real problem because even if this law was not particularly useful or important, having been put on the books, the non-enforcement of this law – creates a real gap in American deterrence. If we have a law that says you're not allowed to spend money on this, and of course under the Constitution, uh, no money can be appropriated except uh, with congressional permission, and then that law is not enforced. It makes it very hard to take seriously any American commitments in the Middle East to protect or defend Israel when the times uh, get tough. And certainly given the many criticisms from this administration of the UN, uh, this is basically a free pass. That is to say, you don't have to think of ways to defund the UN or sanction the UN. The law currently requires these four agencies to be uh, to be defunded, and it's not clear why it's not being implemented. I, I, and is your is it your impression that inside the administration, or inside Congress, there are those who take your point and are going to pursue it or not? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't think it's a matter of uh, lack of will. I think it's a matter of lack of bandwidth. And naturally, the people in the State Department who made this argument under Obama that you're not a UN agency if you're created by a treaty, uh, they're still around, and I think they're not pushing the ball forward very fast. Well, just as, and we've, this is something we've focused a bit on here at FTD, um, there is a, a document that makes clear that UNRWA um, – which, which claims it, it takes care of five million refugees. There are, the actual number of refugees is much, much smaller than that. The, uh, the, we're talking in this, it's a classified report and it was classified by somebody not terribly high up at the State Department and there's no reason for it to be classified. There's no national security danger in saying, okay, the actual number of refugees, those who were, who fled, um, from what is now Israel during the war in 1948, um, we know the number, say it's 30,000. That's a reasonable guess. It's not 5 million and that, that number requires that all children, grandchildren, et cetera, et cetera. And then it, that the number will increase exponentially forever. Um, if we know the actual number, not necessarily to defund anybody, but to say, okay, these are the number of refugees being taken care of. And these other people are essentially on welfare and we're contributing to that. But if you want to talk about who's going to come home, and I don't, I, look, I, there are, whereas we talked about this earlier, all the number of Jews who were forced to flee from Arab countries is equal to or greater than the number of those who consider themselves refugees from Israel living in such places as Gaza, which evidently is Palestine, so they're not really internally displaced, they're not really refugees, or living in the West Bank, again, Palestine, they shouldn't, there shouldn't be a refugee camp for Palestinians in Palestine, or living in Jordan in many cases as Jordanian citizens. And by the way, as you know, the population of Jordan is 75% of what is historically 
Palestine. Uh, by the way, it's a Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. A majority of the population are not Hashemites, but the Hashemites have self-determination and self-expression uh, through that. Interestingly, though, we criticize that as well. Anyway, we have been trying to push just to – let's get the facts on the table so we can have an, a real discussion about the, refu the refugees and those who are in need and how many there are and how they can best be cared for. Eugene Kontorovich, it's been a delight to speak to you. Israel is a tiny country. It faces serious threats, determined enemies, enormous challenges. And it's just been, I've just been very pleased to have a chance to discuss all of this with you today. And I hope we can do it again because none of this, <laughs> none of these things are going away. These battles will continue. Thank you so much, Good. It's been Thank, a pleasure. Thank you, Eugene. And uh, thanks to all of you. Uh, you've been listening to Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Foreign Policy. As always, find and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. If you like this week's episode and have feedback for us, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd appreciate your thoughts and your criticisms, too. We hope you'll join us again in the future, but until then, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy. Foreign Policy.